Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, collaborative research between the University of Galway and Brunel University in London has found that patients with severe and complicated obesity respond differently to a dietary weight loss programme based on their genes. I'll be joined by Professor Francis Fanukin, Senior Lecturer in the School of Medicine at the University of Galway and Consultant Endocrinologist at Galway University Hospital, who led the clinical study to have a very real conversation about how we view and treat obesity. And Fiona Brennan, clinical hypnotherapist and best-selling author, will join me to discuss retreats, why they are good for us and how we can weave what we learn into our everyday lives. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it has been a busy week. Lots of buses came at once, as they say, and I felt like I had a different body part on each bus as I was pulled in all different directions. But I did manage to do much of what I set out to do. I did get the yoga class in. I did have a date night, albeit watching Netflix together. But the intention was there. And this week was focused a lot on something I set out to do at the start of the year, which was have a look at my finances, managing money better, making sure all is in place for a secure future, all that sexy stuff. It's something that's been coming up for me for a while and I really did turn my focus to it more this year. So I've met with a financial consultant and it was also suggested to me something I wanted to share with you, that I listen or read a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, by Robert T. Kiwazaki. And I was in Waterford this week for the launch of Mount Congreve Gardens. So on the drive down, I popped on the audiobook. And in it, Robert talks about his life growing up and the influences on his view of money. So his own dad was highly qualified with college degrees and worked as a teacher, but never really had a lot of money. And when he died, he died with debt. And his best friend's dad left school at the age of 13, became a self-made owner of several businesses and made an absolute fortune. And Robert talks about how in school we're not taught about the power of money and how to truly understand how it works. So instead of working for money, which most of us do in the so-called rat race, going from paycheck to paycheck and often borrowing along the way to make ends meet, we should be looking to make money work for us, investing wisely, being just one option discussed. So, look, I'm about halfway in, but I did find it fascinating. A lot of it is down to our mindset, our priorities and our knowledge around how money works. And so much of our well-being is connected to money, what we earn, how we earn, what we owe, and so much stress can come from it. So I've certainly found that my deciding it was something I was going to focus more on has already felt better. And I do recognise, look, I'm a privileged person. I'm in a very good situation, but it can be a topic which can cause many of us and myself included at times to bury our heads in the sand about and say, I'm just not that kind of person to understand that and wait for somebody else to sort it out. So I have been doing lots of adult behaviours this week and taking control and it was good to kind of get that on my agenda. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, my next guest, a regular on the show, Fiona Brennan, is a renowned clinical hypnotherapist, a best-selling author and a motivational speaker. Among her many resources for people are retreats, which she runs here in Ireland and abroad. And she joins me in studio now to discuss the benefits of taking ourselves from our routines and how we can weave what we learn into our everyday. Well, you're very welcome, Fiona. Thanks, Claire. Delighted to be here, as always. And retreats are 
really, really popular. They're they're everywhere. And I mean, I'm sure many people will say, oh, that's just a, a really money making racket. But there is a real benefit for people to take time away from the rat race, isn't there? There really is, Claire. Like, to be honest, I'm not that long running retreats. Like, I ran my first one only less than a year ago. And since then, I think I've done four at this stage with another two coming up. So what I've noticed after years of clinical practice working with people one-to-one is just how beneficial they really are. And it's, you know, really the the combination of a few things that make them so um transformative. First of all, there is the idea of getting out of your routine, like you just said, okay? So you you remove yourself from the familiar. Now that does quite a few things in terms of the impact on our consciousness. When we're moved out of our routine, our triggers, our everyday life, we enter into a, a more heightened state of awareness. Just just naturally, like, you know yourself, if you go off somewhere new, you become very present. You're like, wow, look at this, look at that. So so literally just by changing your environment, you become more present. And when you become more present, you become more open to um, to changes, to shifts, to insights. Um, so that's one of the really, really, you know, advantages about it. Very simple. It seems so straightforward. And it is. But, you know, like what you said there about, you know, people see it as, as a money making racket or, you know, and I think that's it's worth um, having a discussion about that because I think that, you know, it can seem like they can seem really expensive. Like I couldn't spend that kind of money on myself. It seems almost like indulgent. However, what we do tend to do, right, is we tend to spend money on ourselves in different ways looking for what, you know, that that reward, let's say, of feeling calmer, feeling more sort of like filling a hole, like sort of, you know, whether it's shopping or, you know, getting some beauty treatment or something like that, especially for for women. Um, Not, of course, only, but um, the idea is that when you actually really invest in yourself, right, in a way that is going to deliver the very thing that you're looking for, which is more space for yourself, more space to connect, more space to feel invigorated, inspired. Um, and that happens because you're you're in a place where you're amongst like-minded people. So the second part that's so transformative is the group element. And that's that's just amazing. You know, I I'm still on a high, I'm not joking, from my first retreat in Crete last year. And the group has become this, it's almost like a, a an entity of themselves that they are now really supporting each other. And they've made such progress um, by, by connecting with one another, by entering into a space of non-judgment to be amongst other people where there really is no agenda, there's no judgment. It brings out a part of ourselves that, that can be hidden for many, many years our authentic self, our, the part of us that, that wants to have fun, that wants to laugh. You know, I saw these amazing people with quite high pressure jobs and, you know, responsibilities, kids, busy lives and literally giggling like school kids, you know, just getting back into that um, part of us that is free from responsibility. And that's what retreats can do for you in terms of um, liberating you in many, many ways. 
in a very, I think it's really important that you you, you select the one that's right for you. So it depends, like the, the type of retreats that I tend to do are, are, you know, because I'm a therapist, are going to be more therapeutic. Um, but really, it's about finding what you need. You know, a yoga retreat can, can offer you so much as well. It just depends where you are and what you need in, in your life. And I suppose you're setting that intention that we spoke about at the start of the yeah. year, that you're prioritising yourself or that you're taking time for yourself and that you're having a look at yourself. And I think that's sometimes what people are a bit afraid of. We call it doing the work. But it is work. And that's why people are a bit like, oh, God, I I don't know if I want to look under the bonnet because they think what they're going to find there is going to be a nasty job. Yes. Yeah. People, you'll often see that people will sort of consider it and say, oh, maybe no. And they'll put it off and they'll put it off and they'll put it off. And then what happens is everyone's trying to get a space because they, you know, it's like the last minute. Oh, I'll do it. You know, there's that kind of like... um, I don't know, a, a impulse to say, yeah, let's let's go for this. Because I think you're right, Claire, people do have that um, sort of trepidation about what what will I discover? What will who who am I when I step out of my my routine? Uh, who is that person? And yes, it's totally understandable how that could be somehow um, overwhelming. But essentially what happens is that that, you know, once you make that jump, you discover that what you feared was was actually, you know, the very thing that you need, you know, is is to discover that and to spend time with yourself. Um, also, a lot of people go on, on, it's not just, but a lot of people book solo. And I think that's a wonderful thing to do, to be honest with you, because, again, you're you're empowering yourself, you're building your confidence. If you think, well, I can go off to Crete or France or wherever it might be on my own with a group of people I don't know, right? Um you just feel kind of very empowered to think, well, I could, if I can do that, I can give my presentation work. I can, you know, um, be calm when I meet my mother-in-law. I can, you know, it just extends out into other areas of our lives. Yeah, and I, I think people might assume that it takes a particular kind of person to go on retreat and that when you go on a retreat, you're going to have to share the innermost parts of your soul and you're going to have to chant and you're going to have to dance around <laughs> the woods in your bare feet. And look, if that's for you and that does happen, who knows, you might love it. But it's not necessarily all about that, is it? It's not. No, I mean, I think it's fair to say, though, that you will be asked to step out of your comfort zone, right? And that is a good thing because... To my mind and, and my wealth of experience, the comfort zone is a very uncomfortable place. As, as long as we stay there, we tend to limit ourselves. So again, it's that ability to, maybe it is like a barefoot walk on the beach or the, the woods or, you know, something that you would never do. Um, For example, like one one of our ladies who came to Crete, you know, she, she climbed this, um, it was like a hill that had an amazing view and she thought she could never, there was no way she would ever do that. And the sense of achievement of being able to do something that you thought you never could do, it's it's kind of priceless. There is, no, you know, there's there's no money that you can actually put on that feeling. Put yourself out of your comfort put zone. You, and that's don't it, be exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't be afraid because the, the comfort zone is what kind of eats us up. It keeps us, um, you know, doubting ourselves. And so much of what I see in my work is people doubting themselves, you know, doubting their ability, a lack of self-esteem in their own capacity um, to to live to their fullest potential. So I think retreats are this kind of, you know, they're they're what's amazing is that they're 
it's a period of time that comes together and like one day, Claire, can feel like a week because there's so much when you schedule time in an effective way, how much you can actually get through in one day is is amazing. And when I say get through, what I mean is experience, how much you can learn about yourself, how much fun you can have, how much, um, you know, insights you can make. And even like a one day retreat, you can make an insight that you couldn't see clearly in your everyday life. Yeah. And I don't think we realise how fast we move in life or maybe we do. Um, Yeah. But I was even at a a yoga class last night and it's very, um, she slows everything down and I realise how little I connect with my own body. You know, she really gets you to focus on certain parts of your body and even little small things like that because you just spend your time in your head going around. So to take that that time and that moment for yourself is, is hugely beneficial. Sometimes I think there's a danger in going on this retreat and then just reverting back to everyday life. How do you make sure you take the little gems that you pick up about yourself and weave them into your everyday? Well, I think it's really important. And I think that, you know, any good retreat sort of manager or facilitator is going to have a pre, during and post um, sort of uh, care package, if you like. So you're not just left afterwards, you know, out at sea, that there is a sort of accountability, let's say. So, for example, on the the group again to Crete, there's an accountability system there that that continues to this day um, where people continue to support each other, where I continue to, to, to check in and see how people are. So you want to really take the energy like so much of it is about the, the changes within the brain. And when you have an experience, a positive experience, you're going to have self-directed neuroplastic positive shifts. And what you want to do is really start to to bring that into your, you know, your your everyday. Because a retreat is only worth its weight in gold if it is actually um, going to help you day to day. You know, so you can be all relaxed in a beautiful place, but it's being relaxed when you're you know, having to pick up the kids and doing the dishes and you've got that meeting that, you know, all of the, the what we're talking about. So it's it's a case of really getting those shifts on a deeper level and using tools and techniques that you, you learned on the retreat to actually implement them into your everyday and to know that you're supported. I think so much of what we, we really need to feel is that we're supported and that we're understood. And when you're part of a group, that comes as part of the package and it's it's very, very healing and very, very um, motivating to continue to practice. Yeah, and I think we're so lucky um, because there are so many offerings up and down the country for retreats and the people that give them are usually on Instagram. You'll get reminder videos, you'll get meditations. There are online courses. You can do a retreat from your own bedroom if that's what's right for you for the first step. So I encourage people to have a look at what's around um, and give it a try and do email aliveandkickingnewstalk.com and let me know how you get on. You did mention you have a couple of retreats. You have one coming up in March. It is almost full, but people can check that out and you're heading away later on in the year. So if people want to find out more about them and the work you do, they can go to thepositivehabit.com. Fiona Brennan, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Claire. Alive and Kicking. On News Talk. Now, my next guest, Professor Francis Fanukin, Senior Lecturer in the School of Medicine at the University of Galway and Consultant Endocrinologist at Galway University Hospital. 
was recently involved in the lead of a clinical study looking at the role of genetics and obesity. And he joins me in studio now to have what I hope will be a very real conversation about how we view and treat obesity. Francis, you're very welcome. Thanks very much indeed, Claire. You have been on the show previously. Um, People can listen back. It'll be up there in our podcast talking about why you do what you do. And we have discussed obesity before. And you're in, as I mentioned, to talk about this new study. Tell us a bit about the Geronimo project. Sure. Well, Geronimo was uh, a study that we undertook in Galway uh, over the last few years to try to determine whether our genes influence how we respond to uh, specific types of lifestyle interventions or structured lifestyle intervention. And in particular, in this study, uh, we uh, recruited patients who were attending our uh, service for uh, management of severe and complicated obesity. And we asked these patients if they would be generous enough to provide us with some uh, a blood sample so that we could see whether genes that are commonly associated with obesity uh, were uh, also associated with how much weight they lost when they did a very restrictive uh, dietary intervention with us. When you were looking at this, you were trying to see why obesity might happen in the first place based on genetics, but also why certain treatments work over others based on genetics. That's right. This is the big challenge we face in any of the treatments that we have for uh, obesity uh, globally. And it particularly applies, I think, to people in society who are worst affected, say, for example, by having a very, very high body mass index or by having the complications of obesity, such as type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease, sleep apnea. So the challenge we face really from a clinical point of view for providing medical care for those worst affected is that there's variations in the responses to uh, the different treatments that we have, be that uh, bariatric surgery for carefully selected patients or indeed the medications that are so promising now for obesity. But it also applies to other interventions such as um, uh, uh, structured dietary uh, interventions or physical activity interventions. And this particular uh, study focused on a very restrictive dietary intervention where we give people approximately 1,200 calories per day in a meal replacement program. And this is a six-month program, and it's very much a short-term solution. Uh, And what we found was that individuals who had a particular genetic risk score that made them more prone to uh, carrying weight centrally, uh, so around their tummy, uh, those individuals lost about six kilograms or, or a stone less weight than individuals who had a much lower level of that genetic risk score. So that's interesting because it show, it's a proof of concept for the first time in an Irish cohort of patients that uh, our, our response to a dietary intervention isn't just about willpower or uh, how hard you know someone works at the intervention uh, or personality. It's more about our biology and our physiology. And this is consistent with uh, topics that you've covered with other speakers on the show um, uh, in relation to our growing understanding now of the biological and physical, physiological basis for variations in, in body weight uh, and the complications from obesity that we see across the population. So our biology and our physiology, our genetics, is that something that we can control or influence? Well, yeah, I think it is something that we can, I I think certainly understanding physiology, understanding genetics 
better will help us to devise more effective stre- treatment strategies and will help us to understand uh, which patients ultimately derive the most benefit from a specific treatments. So uh, to take the drugs, for example, um, we know that when we start people on, <clears throat> say, a drug like semaglutide uh, for obesity, um, there might be an average weight loss of perhaps two stone over 12 months but that there's a big variation in that. And we would say to patients that one in six patients over a year of treatment might not lose much weight at all on the drugs. And again, that's not a reflection of their underlying um, motivation or personality. Rather, it's a reflection of their biology and their physiology. And if we can understand that better, we can tailor the drugs more effectively to specific individuals. And we are going to get into the way society views obesity and the assumptions and the stigma surrounding that. And you've already kind of hinted at it already. But is our motivation always to bring somebody who's considered to be obese back to a different weight and make them lose weight to make them healthier? Well, Claire, that's a great question. Um, And uh, there's so much to it. But the answer is no. I think we're moving away now from taking the so-called weight-centric approach to managing the problem of excess body weight. So, uh, to be honest, in our clinic, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a consideration because, as a rule, uh, the, the, the higher the elevation in body mass index in an individual patient coming through the door, the more likely they are to have some of the complications associated with overweight and obesity. But it's important to remember that, for example, in a diabetes clinic, uh, so for patients with type 2 diabetes, which we traditionally associated with um, uh, excess body weight, half of the patients with type 2 diabetes in Ireland, approximately, uh, don't have obesity. Uh, 15% of them have a normal body mass index uh, below 25. Now that, you know, comes to a different point, which is the limitation of body mass index as an index of health or as an index of excess body weight. Um, for example, uh, elite athletes um, uh, who, who do strength and conditioning and have a high amount of lean body mass, for example, will have a high body mass index, but it's difficult to characterize them as having excess body fat. And there's also the consideration of whether the body fat that somebody has is working properly or if, indeed if it's in the correct location. So body fat uh, that's distributed in the legs, for example, tends to be associated with good health, not bad health. And an absence of fat in the legs is associated with um, a higher risk of developing things like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. We're only only beginning now to realise the nuances of not just how big somebody is or how heavy somebody is, but also where the fat in their body is located, how well that fat functions as a place to store fuel or excess fuel in some cases, and uh, the the relationship between how that fat is working and other parts of our metabolism, such as how well insulin is working, how well we're storing fuel in in different tissues, etc. So so it's complicated. I'm not sure if I've gone off the point there, but... uh, uh, Certainly weight is not the be-all and the end-all when it comes to somebody's health. Yeah, and even the way you're talking about it, obviously you have to talk about it in a medicalised way. These are real people that we're talking about, living lives, living with this stigma, living with health-associated issues. Um, But we need the research and we need the findings before we can progress. I suppose that's where it starts. How long will it take for this particular study to translate into treatment? Well, that's a great question. And the short answer is that this particular study was a small study. Um, So it had fewer than 100 participants. 
Um, and also the effect size of the gene uh, was, 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 it was several genes that we looked at in, 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 in combination. And so th- th- this will not mean that we will be able to test genes next week and decide whether or not an individual ought to consider our meal replacement program or not. Um, but it's an exciting proof of principle. And I think if we could scale up these studies to look at the responses to different interventions over longer periods of time in larger numbers of patients and study participants, we'd start to tease out some uh, important new findings. Well, I have a quote here. You um, did this study in conjunction with Brunel University in London and Professor Alex Blackmore um, is a professor in human genomics. And she said... No one chooses their genes. So as a society, we need to recognise that when it comes to maintaining a healthy weight, the challenge is greater for some people than for others. This study reveals just a small part of the picture of how our genes can help or hinder us in reaching our health goals. And the conversation is beginning to change, but it's it's only starting. There are still so many assumptions made from somebody who is outside of that athletic build assumptions that they have certain lifestyles, that they eat too much and that they don't move enough. And that's just not the picture from a science point of view anymore. Well, absolutely. I mean, that sort of a view, to be frank, uh, betrays a complete lack of understanding of the nuances of what influences uh, an individual's weight. And it's a, it can't, I can't put it any, any, any clearer than that. I, I think... Um, I heard Adam Harris, uh, a, a, an autism advocate, speaking recently about a different uh, healthcare issue, but I think he put it very well when he described challenges faced by people with autism as um, same storm, different boats. And I think the same applies for uh, individuals within society who are affected by overweight and obesity within an adverse uh uh, environment, uh, in other words, the the everyday sort of exposures we have to uh, unhealthy food and the overproduction of that food and the overmarketing of that food, um, uh, these foods are becoming increasingly unhealthy, um, and we're, we're bombarded with uh, information and stimuli to 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 consume these foods, and within that kind of um, uh, storm, if you like, uh, some individuals are going to be more prone than others uh, to you know, to eat more of these foods than they ought to. Uh, these are these are um, behavioural, if you like, patterns or dietary uh, patterns in particular and physical activity patterns to some extent that are are influenced by those environmental changes, but that within within the population at any point in time, uh, there'll be variations that, that arise because of our biology. So just to be clear on that, if you take a snapshot of people walking down the street at any mo- moment in time, the variations in body weight uh, and size in that street full of people will be strongly determined by genes. Approximately 70% of the variation, according to the best genetic research, is accounted for by genes and about 30% by other factors. But the changes in the shape of people over decades on that street have dr- have been driven by the changes in the environment, predominantly the food environment. And that's really unequivocal uh, from a population health point of view and from a state of the art in terms of the science point of view uh, in 2023. You were talking about how we produce food and the environment in which we live in that is making it really, really difficult for people. Uh, can we talk a bit about that? 
Yeah, well, uh, I think up until about a decade ago, uh, there was some kind of, you know, uncertainty uh, in some scientific certain circles as to what might be uh, driving uh, the obesity crisis. And people often debated whether it was, you know, to, to, to paraphrase um, a famous uh paper from the BMJ in 1995, they wondered whether it was quote-unquote gluttony or sloth. Um, now, thankfully, we've moved away from that sort of uh, view of obesity as a sort of a, a, a having biblical uh, causes, if you like. But uh, And we, we realise now that it's a complex uh, neurobehavioural disorder which is strongly uh, influenced by genes but also by environmental factors. Um, so, it's... it's we know that, as I mentioned, those individual variations in uh, your tendency to uh, potentially overeat or to gain weight or to develop diabetes if you do gain that weight, these are all strongly genetically influenced and are related to your underlying physiology and your biology. But the changes over the last four decades or so that have arisen globally have been driven by changes in how we treat food, how we produce it, how we market it and uh, how we um, how we treat it so that it lasts longer on shelves and it tastes better uh, and we sell more of it and it becomes more profitable. And of course, these are important. Food security is important. We need to make sure that uh, everybody has access to uh, inexpensive um, food and nobody's starving. And this was the priority after the Second World War. And, uh, you, you know, I think we've overshot the runway uh, since the 1970s. And uh, we've made food too available, uh, too heavily marketed, too palatable. And we face a difficult dilemma as a society in unravelling that problem. Uh, and that will involve um, putting public health ahead of uh, the commercial interests of the large multinational corporations that are making so much money from, from these food products. Because it's so tied into all of our health and food messaging, isn't it? I mean... I was surprised to learn that even with the food pyramid, the people on the board that decided that way back when all had a vested interest in each of the industries represented in the food pyramid. And if that's one of the basic structures on which people are living within, and in fact, I think that's even gone by the wayside with the kind of foods that you're talking about, the convenience foods, the high fat, high calorie, high sugar, that seems to be in everything. Even some of the quote unquote healthy foods have hidden sugars, have labels that claim they have major health benefits, everything down to kids' sugary cereals as opposed to give you immune support. When you're fighting against that stream, it does make it very challenging. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you know, this is a profoundly complicated area and uh, I think social scientists, philosophers, critical marketing theory experts are only beginning to realise the complexities around uh, how we devise um, you know, accessible and reliable information for the public about what uh, constitutes a healthy diet. So I think the food pyramid, in fairness, is is um, it reflects the best efforts of some of the world's biggest experts on what we should tell people on a simple sort of single page piece of information. But when you and and I think you know the people involved in Ireland, for example, in in uh, for formulating policy on what we should advise the public to eat, you know, are, are conscientious people who are doing their very best with uh, the, the scientific information that we have to hand at this point in time. However, 
there are very significant controversies around whether or not we should have orange juice, for example, as a prominent sort of uh, food product to consume on the food pyramid when it's, you know, full of sugar, um, has a lot of acid and it's not very good for kids' teeth, for example. And I often see people consuming uh, things on the basis that it's going to do their health good when in actual fact you wonder about whether we're getting it right all of the time in the advice that we provide to people. Now, we do have to do our best and and provide people with some advice, but um, sometimes that's controversial. And uh, um, I I think you've raised another important point, and that is the commercial influences, um, uh, the the commercial determinants of health. And and there's there's a, a process called corporate political activity, and that has been profoundly important in recent decades in um in in the smoking industry so so the tobacco industry and and when they examined some of the uh, documents from tobacco industry lobbying from the 1990s in the states i think it led to a whole new field of health policy uh, scientific interrogation and we realize now that it sometimes the relationship between commercial actors and large corporate bodies and public health authorities can be problematic. And sometimes the corporate actors, uh, the commercial influencers, if you like, have far too much uh, of a say in what we advise the public to do or what we advise politicians to do in terms of constraining the uh, drivers of an unhealthy environment. You're the second person to mention um orange juice in many weeks. Professor Tim Spector was on last week and he said we should start just looking at it like it's a soft drink. You know, you can drink it occasionally or when you want, if you want, but you need to know it's the same as drinking a glass of of Coca-Cola. And different foods will affect different people in different ways. You've kind of attested to that. And he also did with his, his Zoe project and he was talking about how he's completely changed his diet that he thought was healthy, having muesli and a, a smoothie at breakfast and then he was grabbing a wholemeal sandwich at lunch. But when he actually looked at what that did to his blood sugars and, and the workings of his body, that didn't really suit him. Whereas his wife is French and can eat croissants for breakfast and it doesn't affect her. Is that how we need to start looking at healthcare in a more individualised way? Yeah, well, for what it's worth, I think he's absolutely 100% right in uh, in what he says about those notionally healthy products. And I've done the same and I've noticed a change in my own health too. But uh, the, the wider point here is that um, your your listeners will, will hear um, another doctor on the radio giving out about orange juice and I, I suspect many of them will throw their hands up in despair and wonder, gosh, uh, there's so much confusion and controversy about what is healthy and what is unhealthy. And I think that plays to uh, potentially to, to, to the interests of those people who are producing what is definitely unhealthy stuff. So so while orange juice doesn't suit uh, some insulin-resistant doctors, um, there's no doubt that... Um, Sugar-sweetened beverages like like um, our soft drinks or um, large, you know, chocolate bars um, or, or um, you know, chocolate products with toys in them, um, and you know, formula milk, uh, cereal biscuits for breakfast for for toddlers. 
These are all clearly egregious, harmful products that are beyond any sort of controversy. And they seem to slip under the radar of people's consciousness when they're in the supermarket because, you know, there's some, there's some uh, you know, controversy about some of the, the, the more mainstream foods. And uh, a number of years ago, uh, there was a conference uh, called by the editor of the British Medical Journal, which had the, the great and the good of nutritional epidemiology from around the world. And it was a super conference. Um, uh, and when she opened the conference, the editor said, you know, in relation to nutritional science, if you're not confused, you're not paying attention. So uh, the more I learn about uh, what's right and what's wrong in nutritional epidemi- epidemiology, the less I know. And, you know, we, we run a master's program in obesity in Galway. And one of the first things I teach the students on that course is that we're, you're not, you're not going to come away from the course knowing you know, with more certainty about what to eat or what not to eat, you're going to come away less certain. But the important thing is that we need to uh, we need we need to recognise that there are huge questions that remain to be answered about what's healthy, what's unhealthy, and that depends on the individual. So orange juice is fine if you're a 24 year old county footballer with a BMI of 22, but it's not okay if you're a slightly overweight, um, uh, middle aged consultant. Um, who struggles to, uh, to to control uh, your appetite. Do you know what I mean? And um, especially if you're insulin resistant, because the effects these foods have on different individuals uh, are, are quite, are, are very hugely, and that influences ultimately your health. And when you look at the money that is spent in the health service dealing with issues that arise from the food we eat, the way we eat, the way we live, that money could be spent so much better on education. I mean, even if you look at smoking now, people still smoke. It is a choice that you can make. And I know it's been made more difficult for people through the pricing, through the smoking ban, through whatever it is. And the the, the pictures on the packets have got more and more gruesome as the time has gone on. But at least the education is there and you choose to do it. Whereas people are picking up a product because it says nature on the front and thinking that must be healthy, that must be good for me. Um and, and as you say, it's sort of slipping through the radar. Can we talk about the treatments then for obesity? Um, because some of them are still quite full on, um, be it medication, be it surgery. So are we still giving people a holistic treatment because it's so multifaceted? There's a psychological impact, there's a physical impact. Are we helping people on that level? I only say that because... I think of people who have gone through bariatric surgery, for example, um, and while it might address one issue, they're still the same person who's dealt with all of that stigma. They're still that same person who's walking into that same supermarket. It's a big question for just one man to answer, but are we treating people holistically about weight-related issues? Well, I think we try to um, within the, you know, very constrained resources that we have in in the healthcare system, in particular in Ireland. And I think, you know, notwithstanding some of the great progress that's been made by uh, Donal O'Shea and his colleagues in the National Clinical Programme for Obesity, um, we we are still way behind uh, European norms in terms of access to the various types of specialist medical and surgical care for people who are worst affected by obesity. Um, and you know, just just to just to kind of segue, if you like, between the population level stuff and the patient level stuff, 
the most important paper in population medicine that was ever written, in my opinion, uh, was uh, called Sick Individuals and Sick Populations. And that was written by uh, a man called Jeffrey Rose, the so-called father of preventive medicine back in 1985. It was such an important paper that it was republished in 2001. And in it, he he describes needing to take a two-pronged approach to a problem like obesity. And I was reminded of Jeffrey Rose because of your, you, you mentioned the smoking ban there and all of the population level interventions that we did to curb smoking. And, you know, it, it, it's certainly the most important public health intervention that we've had in Ireland uh, in the last, you know, 50 years was Micheál Martin's introduction of the smoking ban. And of course, that's not going to do anything to people with lung cancer. Uh, or for people with lung cancer or people with end-stage emphysema from smoking-related lung tissue loss. But it does stop uh, increasing numbers of people affected by smoking diseases in the population. So you've got to do the population-level stuff just like they did with smoking, and it worked very, very well. So we've got to do that population-level stuff for obesity. But at the same time, we can't say to somebody with a body mass index of 42 and type 2 diabetes that they just need to try harder to adhere to the food pyramid or they need to stop watching the ads for you know the soft drinks on the telly on uh, on the, on uh, on the contrary what we need to do is we need to provide them with the same sort of clinical care that we would provide to anybody else who has a lifestyle related uh, a medical problem. So, for example, if somebody is uh, suffers from alcohol dependence syndrome and they come into the hospital with, you, you know, complications from that, there's no question that, but, but that we will treat them with uh, compassion and care and timely access to sometimes expensive medical treatment, because that's the sort of society that we are. But it feels sometimes, as somebody providing that care in the west of Ireland. It feels sometimes that as a society, we view the problem of obesity differently to other diseases. And there's no doubt that obesity is a disease and that it requires treatment, especially for people who are severely affected. And and the surgery works extremely well if it's conducted in that holistic, multidisciplinary way. So you cannot just have surgery uh, and then expect everything to be okay. It just doesn't work like that. That's what the surgeons tell us, and that's what uh, other you know experts from other domains tell us. So, um, uh, uh, but you know, we definitely need to invest in uh, the provision of 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 clinical services for these patients, and that is starting. In fairness. But it feels like it's it's taking a long time and it hasn't been delivered just yet, um, certainly where I live. And that's so interesting, even that you mentioned the alcohol-related medical issues, because if somebody does present with that, you're right, there's a, there's a multifaceted reason why they may have ended up there. It could be related to their personal upbringing, trauma, experience. Um, Yes, we could start talking about whether or not we should sponsor sporting events with alcohol. You know, there's a whole societal, government, legislation, policy, personal reason. But we do meet that sometimes with, with a little bit more empathy than we do with this. And there's this one question that just keeps popping up time and time again, because we're saying the words crisis and problem and issue, and I know you're coming at it with empathy. It isn't an option for us to just leave this issue alone and try and help people just have a healthy relationship with body and food and accept that this is the environment in which we live in. People are going to be in bigger bodies. 
uh, well, well, that's fine if that's what if that's what the individual would like. Um, so I don't think we should be going out, you know, with with a net and grabbing people into clinical services. But the patients I see on a daily basis uh, have significant pain or significant fatigue and and other uh, complications from poorly controlled diabetes, or they have significant mental health issues because of the uh, uh, you know the the struggles that they face with these other problems, or they they can't work. Or they can't travel because of their their weight. So we talk about the four M's in terms of obesity complications: monetary, uh, mechanical, mental, and metabolic. So so it's not about the number on the scales; it's about those four M's and how, how they affect uh, the individual. So um, if somebody's not struggling with those problems, we don't need to see them. It's when they have those problems they can come to us, and through modifying their their dietary intake um, with medication with surgery with a meal replacement program like the one we discussed earlier in the show um sometimes we can we can help those patients and uh, for for drugs and uh, and for surgery the effects are quite profound uh, for, for most patients who undergo those treatments and i've no doubt that their mental health would be assisted if there was a societal shift in how we view somebody that is in a bigger body. So having conversations like this helps not only them, but those who are quite happy as they are. So thank you for being part of changing that conversation. Professor Francis Fanukin, Senior Lecturer in the School of Medicine at the University of Galway and Consultant Endocrinologist at Galway University Hospitals. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Alive and Kicking, News Talk's health and wellness show. If there's ever a topic you'd like covered on the show or you'd like to comment on one which has already been on, you can always email aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, I would so appreciate if you would rate, subscribe and share with a friend. Alive and Kicking on News Talk.